Welcome to The Reclaimed Leader, a podcast by two pastors trying to lead their churches through revitalization and change. Their mission, to share their journey with you so it might help you in yours. And now, here, please welcome our hosts, Jason Tucker and Jesse Skiffington. Hey, everyone, welcome to episode 74 of The Reclaimed Leader, helping you lead change without losing your roots. I am Jason Tucker, here with Jesse Skiffington. How's it going, Jesse? Doing well, Jason. Uh, Just, you know, plugging away, living life, trying to make ministry happen and, uh, you know, doing our thing. So glad to be in the conversation with you today. And it's another episode where you and I are kind of talking shop. Uh, and we're kind of looking at things from our little window, our perspective, our experiences. And so I always enjoy getting to do that with you, man, because it's, it's great to have guests on and that's a blast and they bring a whole lot of expertise and things. And then every once in a while, it's nice to just to kind of stop and talk about things you and I have been working on or things we've experienced and bring others into that conversation too, uh, because it's kind of who we are, right? We're practitioners doing our best to try some things and uh, and I think a lot of the folks of you guys out there listening in, that's you too. You're trying hard. And so anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, something called contemporary worship today. Is What's that? that? What about? And uh, how do we do it? If you're going to launch a service, what does that look like? If you need to improve your service, what do you need to be thinking about? And so looking forward to that. And the way we're going to do this today is I'm, Jason, you have a lot of experience and, and, and thoughts around this. So we're kind of going to interview you a little bit about your experience and, and things that you've worked on and, and, and done. And then we're just going to kind of talk through it. And hopefully this will be uh, helpful for all of you out there listening in. Yeah. And before we get into it, I did want to talk a little bit about, I think it's time, Jesse, that we jump into uh, the spirit of things here in March and do a little March madness of our own and thought it'd be kind of cool to do some giveaways uh, during March. So, so here's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, if you sign up uh, for our Facebook page, we are going to be uh, giving a little Starbucks away uh, starting, uh, starting this week. So when you pop on, when you hear this episode, go onto our Facebook page, join it, and you're going to get some Starbucks. We're going to put a gift card on there. And, you know, again, Allie, please don't buy a salad. And uh, we're going <laughs> to, but it's, it's a way that we want to reward our listeners and also get you engaged with our Facebook group because we think it's really good. And also, as we continue through the month, you will have an opportunity to win access to the Facebook devotional course that I made that usually sells for about $100. And we're going we're gonna to give you access to that. And it, the reason why really is because I want this in people's hands as much as possible because Facebook is where a lot of your church people are. And it's not as hard as, as you may think. I know it can be intimidating, but to do daily devotionals, we just started one today uh, in our church. We got over 300 people involved. But doing short daily devotionals, um, maybe on the other side of Easter to keep people engaged is something that you could do. So we want to give that away. And this is how you enter to do that. Go to the website, reclaimleader.com, and fill out the subscription information. You'll subscribe. You'll, you'll get all the info every week of our episodes, along with uh, access to show notes. And you will be automatically entered to win 
free access to our Facebook course. And we are going to do a drawing on that on April 3rd. So uh, we'll be ready to go. How's that I sound? Like I think that's I, March Madness. March Madness. I thought you were going to say there's going to be a bracket posted for the NCAA tournament. <laughs> and I started to get really excited. And, um, but anyway, those coffee and, and coffee and Facebook Bible study be pretty good too. So very yeah. cool, Jason. I like yeah, it. Yeah, right on. And we also want to thank our sponsor for this podcast, Belay Solutions, and all the great work that they are doing. If you're looking to get some administrative stuff off your plate or looking for some help with website development, uh, or um, uh, webmastering, then check them out, belaysolutions.com. And if you go use forward slash reclaim leader, uh, they have a download for you as well. So uh, let's get right into it, Jesse. I, w- I was inspired by, uh, by Bob Weitzel and a lot of the things that he's been doing around his seven systems, which we talked about a couple episodes ago, are based on research that was done by the Hartford Institute for Religious uh, Research in 2015, for religion research. And they interviewed, they surveyed 32,000 congregations of different denominations. And I think whenever you can do that, you really catch some data that I think is pretty solid. And one of the things that jumps off the page in that study is the direct correlation between innovation in worship and growth and vitality. That, uh, Churches that were innovative in worship, uh, they grew, they had the largest uh, degree of growth. 53.2% of churches who said that they grew, grew uh, in large part because of innovation in worship. And conversely, less innovation in worship leads to less growth and vitality in all of the markers that they have. Now, we might just automatically think, well, yeah, that makes sense, but I like that there's actually data that backs that up. I think it's backing up what I've seen in real time. Uh, how about you, Jesse? Do you see the correlation between those two? Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, and I think one of the the things that I hear out there a lot of times is um, there's anecdotal sort of experiential information on the other side. And then there's evidence here that you're pointing to that shows something else. I, I hear something like, well, my grandkid loves when we whatever, right? And so they, people point to this exception or this younger generation person that resonates with an older style or more traditional style or something as sort of a reason why we shouldn't move forward and be innovative in our worship. But here you're pointing to a research-based approach that says the evidence actually shows that if you take steps to innovate, it's going to lead to growth and vitality, or at least it has the, it's going to set the, the environment or the opportunity for that growth to happen. If you don't do innovation, it's not even that you're going to stand still. It might actually lead to decline in your congregation. Yeah. So it's, it, the stakes are kind of high, and it's kind of a, a big thought. And so we'll just jump in. When we use the word innovation, what does that mean? Does that just mean modern music? What What do we mean by innovation right there, do you think? I think it's, it's either uh, adding a creative juice to existing services uh, and or launching new worship experiences that are different. And it, it makes a lot of sense, right? So if you think about it, if you're going to spend time on one thing, making one thing better for the most amount of people that you reach on a weekly basis, worship makes sense. That's your big front door into all the other ministries of your congregation, roughly speaking. I know that other people come in other ways, but I would say most people, worship is, is the front door. 
And sadly, it can also be the back door. If your worship is not innovative, if it does not speak their language, we just live in an age where people aren't going to hang out and hope that their sense of community or belonging gets better. Some people will. A lot of people will just bail. Be like, nah, you know what? That really wasn't for me. And I'm going to move on. Now, we could we could should that thing to death and say, well, it shouldn't be that way. But it is. Mm-hmm. So I think being innovative in worship, here's the other thing about innovation and in worship. I think it makes me better as a pastor. Because I think as pastors, we are also creatures of habit. We could fall into whatever our routine is and what was innovative once uh, has become rote over time. Not always, but I think there's a real danger there. And so being innovative kind of forces you and pushes you to think a little bit differently, like in our episode last week when we were talking about preaching. So all of my experience in, um, in working in churches, uh, a lot of my experience has been launching new styles of worship in traditional churches. So launching non-traditional worship in traditional churches. And I've got 10 guidelines to help frame this conversation. And I also think this is helpful, even if you're not just launching a new service, but if you're trying to make one better. And so as we get started, here is guideline one. Guideline one is know your why before your what. Know your why before your what. This helps you avoid some kind of classic pitfalls. So, for example, at a session meeting or a meeting with congregation members or your worship team, somebody might say, and probably already has, we just need to do fill in the blank, right? We just need to get a big screen in the sanctuary. We just need to get the state-of-the-art audiovisual equipment. We just need to hire professional musicians, so on and so on and so on. Like you, it's the, we just need to, like we could buy our way out of our current problems. I don't know. My experience is we just get more expensive problems. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So tell us a little bit more. So if that's kind of people go to that, what thing right away, what does the why look like and how can we shape that conversation? So I'll give you a couple of just practical examples from the church I'm in now. So the, when contemporary worship was launched here at Tower Hill, it was actually launched by the interim minister who stayed on uh, on staff with us, uh, Pastor Teresa, who we we had in the early episode. Mm-hmm. But there was so much so much um, chatter from the congregation uh, from our younger members who said, "Look, we are really craving uh, a more contemporary worship experience," and we're going to go because that's just not Tower Hill. And so they, they were losing young families at a pretty steady clip to other churches that had contemporary worship. And really what it came down to was not just that we wanted contemporary worship, you know, in order to be attractional, but we wanted contemporary worship to speak to an obvious need that there was within our own people. And that's, that was really the impetus for starting a service on Sunday morning with Sunday school was what was going on with young families. And I think that's a pretty compelling why. Uh, we knew who our target demographic was as a result, and so we were able to design worship around them. And then when I came, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of experience, that team, 
uh, didn't have a whole lot of experience of launching contemporary worship. So when I came in and, and did have experience, I could see all the low hanging fruit that was pretty easy to make better. And we were able to get into it. But if we didn't know our why, we probably would have been all over the place with the what. But we were pretty laser focused. We knew exactly who our, who our customer was, if you will, or who our people were that we we're trying to reach. Yeah, I think that's important, kind of getting narrowed in and that there's a, a compelling reason to do this, not just, well, that's what churches do. You know, we try to do that. And so we should figure out a way to to be like others. But there's there's a group of people that you're trying to reach in your congregation or maybe even outside your walls that aren't here yet that you need to be thinking about in, in, along those lines as you shape a contemporary service. So that's guideline number one. Know your why. Be clear about that. And the what, the how and the what will follow. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what's guideline number two? So the second one is start with a task force that reports directly to your governing body. Uh, in other words, so for us in Presbyterian land, it's the session, which are the elders. Um, create a task force that reports directly to them. Don't let it die in a committee because it will die there. Uh, <laughs> right? So, so if you try, and just think about this, if you try to create a task force that reports to the worship committee, the worship committee already has, has a gravitational pull toward what it's always done. And you may find that all the innovation that you're trying to create underneath that committee uh, will just simply die in committee, or it will come out looking very different than really what is needed. So the best thing to do, absolute best thing to do, is to give that task force some teeth, give it some power, and let it report directly to your governing body. I like that. So do an end run around your committee process. <laughs> no, well, I think sort you're, of. Sort of, right? Because w- with innovation, here's the thing. When, when you use the word innovation in any area, right, um, there is a gravitational pull toward what has already been done historically and, and all those things. So innovation needs a, le- a degree of freedom to operate for it to, to happen well. And so using a, a more of a commission or a task force approach, I think, can give some of that freedom still within sort of the the framework of under the authority of your session or your leadership team. So it's not just a runaway train either. Right. But you're, you're not adding more layers. There's more of a grassroots opportunity for ideas to grow up from underneath um, rather than having to go through multiple layers of the organization to pull something off. So, okay. And, and think about who you're trying to convince. The first step is to convince your governing body, but you're not trying to convince the congregation yet. In fact, they probably already are convinced, but but you're not trying to educate them yet. You really just need to educate your elders or whoever your leadership are. So get a task force that reports directly to them. And then the next thing you do is start taking some field trips, some worship field trips. Go to other churches that are doing the worship style that you want to do, whether it's contemporary, jazz, vespers, I don't know, whatever it is that you're looking at. Find a church that's doing that. Uh, And it would be great to find one of your own brand so if you're a Methodist, find another Methodist church. If you're a Presbyterian, find another Presbyterian church. Because I think, I think it's helpful to see what others denominationally are doing. And it gives you some direct data. So when somebody says, that's not very Presbyterian, which I have heard before, you say, well, yeah, it is. Uh, and then you can cite some examples of Presbyterian churches that are doing exactly what you're hoping to do. So it's, it's great to get that direct, uh, that direct uh, experience, but also include at least one way out there church. It, it, whatever you view that to be, 
whether it's Hillsong, New York, or, you know, some other experience, push to the outer limits to sort of open up your imagination. That's good. Yeah, I like that. We need to be, we need to learn from folks within our own circles, but also to see and discover and learn from folks that are doing something totally different, or maybe that's not out of our, our circle. So I think that's wise. Uh, send your people out, get that task force with their eyes open to see and learn and discover from folks that are maybe a few steps further down the road on this thing. Or maybe you notice some things, hey, I, I don't want us to do that. Or man, ugh. you know, you're going to learn a lot either way about what you're hoping for and maybe some vision about specifically what you want to see happen or your task force wants to see happen will start to emerge. Yeah. And so, uh, so the next one, uh, the fourth one is create a very detailed proposal for your session or your governing body. Create a very detailed proposal. What you want to do is, I mean, one of the beautiful things about Tower Hill is we are filled with a bunch of ex-engineers from Bell Labs, that uh, very famous Bell Labs that's uh, pretty close to here in New Jersey. And they think like engineers, which means you can't just tell them, you got to show them. You got to show them every step of how you arrived at the decision you did. Now, sometimes that's super annoying, but I have to say it makes for great proposals because you have to think about all the steps along the way. And, and I know like if you're more inclined toward vision, you just want to kind of hit the accelerator and get there as fast as you can. But it's good to slow down and try to anticipate what are the big questions so that you have an answer when they come. Yeah, exactly right. And I think it's it also when you stop uh, and wrestle through those things, you're going to get clear in your own mind about everything you're trying to do anyway. And if you kind of, if you skip that step or you don't get into the frequently asked questions sort of things and dive deep, uh, you might miss out on some things that uh, a more detailed person is going to kind of want to know or need, or that are actually help you execute when the time comes. Yeah. So thinking it through, I, I found that um, for me, uh, as kind of a big picture vision person, I need to frame that proposal in in the form of a series of questions that I think are related to why we're doing the why part, and then start to hammer through those as as kind of evidence or or a suggestion about why this is why this matters, and here's some ways that we can do it that would meet a need in our midst. So, um, yeah, really crucial, especially for those more detail oriented people that are going to be like, yeah, you got a vision, but I need more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, for example, our most recent initiative, as far as worship goes, is we're adding another contemporary service. We're actually adding it into our fellowship hall because it's going to be at the same time as our traditional service. And if we would have just jumped to that and said, you know, this is what we're doing, it would have been a, a disaster. So we actually took, it's been a year since we first brought it up uh, to the session, to the elders. And we did a whole talk about it before the budget process to make sure that it was going to get funded because we believed, uh, staff and leadership believed that it was, it, it was necessary and it should be part of our vision. But then we, we totally uh, talked that out. We um, discerned it together as a session and put it into this year's budget so that whenever we were ready to launch it, it'd be ready to go. And again, that's just, you can't, you can't run past those uh, 
you know, those details. You have to be able to talk it out with your leaders. And really that goes for any innovation or new idea, new ministry that you're trying to launch or anything. If you don't do that legwork, if you don't get out in front, cast vision, get some detail and budget for it, it's not, it's not going to get off the ground. It's going to be hard to do. So um, I love it. So you got a clear proposal. You're presenting that you're wrestling through. Where do we go from there? Yeah. So now you're starting to think about you know, you probably already have started thinking about what the actual product's going to look like, so to speak, what the actual worship service is going to be like, what's the look and feel that you're going for. But the first thing to really nail down is your environment. Environment is everything. Um, and we, we've heard this, you know, all the time, all the reasons why environment matters. So, you know, people are used to appealing environments. If you're going to launch your new service in your fellowship hall, you better make sure that fellowship hall Maybe it needs a coat of paint. Maybe it needs uh, to make sure that, you know, the sound's real good. Maybe you need to upgrade your, your audio visual. You know, if it's, you can get away with a portable uh, screen and a projector in the middle of the room on a card table for a while, but it's, it's much harder today because people are used to really appealing environments everywhere they go. And they're going to notice if yours isn't. Yeah. And that's tricky because, you know, depending on your facility and what you have available, you might have to get creative or you might actually have to do some, some things in advance, like you said, um, to, to make that space better. And I think it's, this kind of brings us back to another, uh, thought that we've visited a number of times on the podcast, but we forget, um, because we live in our building all the time, the things that maybe aren't so great about it or don't look so presentable but our guests will notice those things. So it's an opportunity if you're kind of launch something in a new space or, or to a space, not a brand new space, but a, a space that you haven't been using, just to kind of look at it with fresh eyes and go, okay, how do we make this presentable and a good environment expecting new people to come in who are going to notice the peeling paint or the dirty floor or whatever it is and kind of, kind of get that perspective so that when you're ready to launch and welcome people, it really feels like you couldn't wait for them to be there. Uh, and it wasn't just an afterthought that we stuffed a, a new contemporary service in a gym somewhere and whatever you get is what you get. Yeah. And even even getting ready to launch this new service, which actually in real time as we're recording launches this Sunday. So, you know, this is really fresh, fresh in my mind as we're looking at all these different things. But even as we were looking to launch in our fellowship hall, we uh, we painted it this summer. We gave a new coat of paint. We uh, we actually added some. Um, Barnwood that we had gotten for another space that we used. And we really made the space work. Uh, I think it's a huge upgrade from what it was. Actually, I think it cost about $3,500 to do everything to get it ready. So, I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not a huge amount of money. And there's probably some sweat equity, people working hard in there. And and, and that's another way to get people excited about and involved in the process. Hey, let's, we're going to do this new thing. Let's all work together to make this space really great so that when we launch it, you know, we can hit the ground running kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So number six, this is the one, this is probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say. Uh oh. (laughs) And, And I say it with love. And, and this is born out of experience. All right, like this buildup? I do. I'm wondering I if it really like, is out of love is the qu- main question. No, I have. It is out of love. And I'm sure there are outliers out there. But here's what I would say. Do not blend worship styles. Do not blend. 
here's the thing. And you've heard a lot of people say this before. If you try to blend a service and say, you know, we're just going to throw in contemporary into traditional. That's usually, you know, what happens. We're going to throw some contemporary songs. It's never contemporary enough for the contemporary people. And it's never traditional enough for the traditional people. You have this very small group of people usually who love it. And they think it's the greatest thing you ever did. But, you know, about 80% would rather see it uh, split. Yeah. Now, the downside to that is just like, is the same downside to adding another worship service is that you're creating two different congregations in the same church family. But I, I don't think there's any way you avoid that if you're already adding a new worship service. You, yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I do think there are examples out there of, of churches that are doing blended worship for a whole variety of reasons that may be having some success or whatever. I do. I agree with you, though. I think there are people who are going to be, I can sing traditional and contemporary and it works, but we can never truly invest in that style in its fullness, if you would, in right. that in that blended model. We can't you can't go from a huge organ piece into, you know, a, a super contemporary piece. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. And so, um, you know, you can try that layered approach or something. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are maybe doing different kinds of things. Our approach here, um, I think I've shared before in this rolling Sunday model. I love this model, by the way. So which is it just, it works for us. I don't know if it worked for everybody, but, um, we said, instead of trying to like blend things and, or whatever, how to, what if we just did like that style of worship in the way it was intended as best we can. And then uh, offer a variety throughout the morning. And you can, we, uh, you know, I'd be happy to share more with you about our specific model, but one way to do it, if you're, if you're a church, say you have one traditional service right now, or maybe even a blended service, and it's not quite satisfactory. You're looking to do what you're doing. You're going to want to add a, a contemporary aspect to your morning. Uh, that's, that's more fully contemporary. One suggestion would be, to, to do this rolling model where you would take the first half an hour would be traditional worship music. And then you'd take a short break and then you'd have a sermon in which everybody's invited to come to the sermon. Uh, and then you take a short break and the traditional crowd can head out to coffee or to the fellowship area or whatever. And then you'd have your most contemporary music for the next half an hour after that or reverse it or whichever order you'd like. But then you're you still have everybody gathered around the word, God's word together in the sermon time, young and old and everybody in between, but you're really honoring the, tr the traditional and the contemporary music and what it was intended to be. And you might actually find that you, you have people that stay for both, but then you can really do it right in each of those styles. And so anyway, yeah. our, our rolling model, we offer three different types of music and only two sermons for that very purpose to have people together when it makes sense and then have them worshiping in the worship language that is kind of resonates most deeply in their hearts. So I love there's it. There's ways to do it. That's our model. Yeah. But, um, That's one of the more creative ways that I've, that I've heard Jesse. Well, again, it's, really, and, and yeah. this is a little aside off of the conversation, but innovation in worship, uh, to not let something be off limits for conversation about how do we do it? Well, and it turns out this, this rolling Sunday model we've been doing for three years now, people, some people only come to the sermon. <laughs> some people come to two music segments. They go to a music, come to a message, but it's, it's created a flexibility and a freedom and then an ability to really invest in the, in, in the music 
format or kind of the style to really make it what it ought to be. And, and I think people enjoy that. So, um, as you're out there doing it, uh, you know, this was, we started with the idea of blended and you're saying, be, be thoughtful about this because in a certain sense of what I hear you saying is when you do blended, everybody kind of loses. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's let never me give you really a practical example of that. Yeah. So there's been a, a push by, by some in the church who bemoan the fact that we don't have the kids bell choirs play in the contemporary service. And the logic goes, well, since contemporary worship has more kids, how are the kids going to be attracted to the bell program if they never see the bells ring? And I, and I totally get it. And my response is they don't play in contemporary because it doesn't fit contemporary worship. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't fit what we're doing. Now, I I don't mean that to say like never have bells in your contemporary service. I'm just saying for us, this is what it looks like. It looks like protecting the culture of both services so that each one could be as the best that it can be at what it's trying to do. That's right. And yeah, yeah. there's, I think another piece here that's really important, at least this is in my experience that there's a certain amount of consistency in your worship service that you need for people to feel comfortable and confident inviting their friends or family members to come. And what I mean by that in in our experience, when we had more of a blended style, this is a number of years ago now, uh, where we had uh, every occasionally uh, the choir or bell choir would sing in the contemporary or play or share a piece in the contemporary part of the morning. And I just remember one instance in particular when we were, um, we kind of had been doing some, some good work in our contemporary service. And then we had this Sunday where the, the bell choir and the choir were going to do the offering piece. And one of our families had invited a new family to come with them. And it wasn't what they had been experiencing for the last two months. And all of a sudden this thing that was totally incongruous with the contemporary service happened and, and, and they were embarrassed by it, you know, whatever. And that's not a judgment on that form of music, but it didn't fit. And everybody could feel that. And I just, afterwards they were like, why would you do that to us? We finally risked inviting someone. And then we had this thing that didn't, didn't resonate with what we normally do here. And so, um, Anyway, I think having those four, the, the, the music fit in the, in, in the service type that it belongs in is, I think what we're saying is it's a pretty important piece of the puzzle here. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know. I, I feel really strongly about that one, but not, I know people have different opinions on that, but I say do not blend styles. Okay. Uh, seven, just swapping music is not going to work. In other words, if you say, well, we'll just do our traditional service and swap out hymns for contemporary songs, like when we're building the contemporary service. That will not work because contemporary worship is as much about the flow and feel as it is about the music. Music's only one part of the flow and feel of that service. So if you look at our uh, contemporary service at Tower Hill, it, is, it couldn't be any more different than our, than our traditional service. It's, com- it's just a completely different animal. And I think that's part of the secret sauce of, of what makes it work is uh, it's not, you didn't just swap out the music uh, because the traditional liturgy or the traditional order of worship, the way that it's done, it's still going to feel too laced up for contemporary worship. 
Yeah. So if you're using that language, sort of the liturgical language, and then putting some contemporary songs in there, it, it, it again, it's a style miss, right? It doesn't make it bad. It just means it belongs with what it belongs with. Yeah. So that more relational conversational approach that we would associate with contemporary, those it needs to be stylistically, it needs to all fit together uh, so that it flows well and feels natural and not uh, out of step with, with itself, I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. All right. So, uh, number eight, and, and this is what I, I would definitely, definitely do this one, hire a worship leader, hire somebody who is going to be able to do the music. And we've, I think we've talked about this before. It's, it's most likely not the person you have on staff already. And, and that's not a knock on uh, traditional musicians. They are light years beyond anything I could ever hope to be as a musician. I mean, they are so gifted, but it's, again, it's a different thing. Mm -hmm. It's really rare to find somebody who is good and, and at ease in both traditional and contemporary circumstances. They're out there, yeah. but I think they are the exception to the rule. Yeah. Say a little more about that. Cause I think a lot of churches are kind of like, well, can we find someone who's 60% contemporary and 40% traditional or some version of that? And I, what I hear you saying is that you think that's like a, the rarest of things, you know, to find do. extremely gifted in both those areas. I do because they're usually a musician's heart is drawn to a certain kind of music. And like, for example, I could learn to play Mozart, but I'm never going to love it as much as I love playing Crowder on the mm-hmm. guitar. Mm-hmm. I might even, I could become proficient at it but it's never going to be, I'm not going to go home and listen um, to Mozart CDs all day. I will listen to Crowder CDs all day. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just not my heart's natural music for whatever reason, however I've been shaped and formed. And that will always come out in the end in, in how I value things in how I prioritize things. And in the end, I think the, the final product um, will be affected in one way or another. So I just think usually it means hiring somebody else. Yeah. And that's, that's hard. I and mean, this is really where it starts to hit sort of main street on real life and real people's lives. I mean, you're, we're talking about a strategy shift in the church on, on staffing. If we can't afford to have two on staff, yeah. who gets the priority, who gets the resources. And I think that's one of the tensions we've talked about as a church moves from a more traditional model to add contemporary. And we start to see an influx of younger folks and, and it kind of moves um, back and forth. The resource pull toward the contemporary service can be perceived as kind of a threat or, or a um, all kinds of different ways from that more traditional crowd where they're like, well, what about us? You're taking resources from this service and you're putting them over here. And so it is, a, it's a big challenge. It's really hard to do both of those things really well. And I think the unspoken truth of it is the future, as much as there's a lot of good things in the traditional world that we hope great, have great music in that realm, but we have to make space for the next generations. And that almost always involves uh, loss of some kind of letting yeah. go of something. And so a lot of, a lot of this comes back down to our more traditional crowd saying, you know what, I'm willing to let go of something in my experience for the sake of those who are coming next so that we can do that well. So that's just part of the hard reality of, of life in the church, um, yeah. serving, serving one another and being willing to do that. But as you're searching out there for a worship leader, I mean, maybe some of these, some of the folks listening are, are where do you even begin? Who do you look for? Um, it seems like 
it could go sideways in a hurry if we don't get the right person to fill that role. So what do you do? How do you search? Where do you start? Sure. Now for us, our, our worship leader is full time now. Uh, Dan, who we, we had on the, the podcast, his, his was a great episode too. I'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but he didn't start out that way. It's only recently that he's become full time. So I think part-time is absolutely fine for this position. And if you're nervous about, you know, your uh, personnel or your organizational chart or your model, staffing model, you could hire a part-timer to do uh, contemporary who reports to your traditional person. So you can make the traditional person the supervisor, if you will, um, and and then have this other worship leader. This way, um, you're person who's already on staff can really help with organization, sending emails to the band, getting everything set up, uh, maybe transposing music, things that might require some technical expertise. But you can go to a Christian college or you can go to any college. You could find a kid and listen, uh, they need the money and they will do it for very little (laughs) and they'll probably be very good. There are Christian groups on campus where they have musicians all the time. Reach out to them. Uh, every, you know, college kids want the money. Now, that's not the most stable answer, right? Because at, at best, you're going to get four years of that student. But that's four years is a lifetime in the life of the church. So in that time, your service can grow and flourish. But that's where I'd start. Look at Christian schools or seminaries or, you know, I mean, anything around. Um, and then if you don't have anything like that around, go to guitar stores. Guitar Center uh, is a big one. They have bulletin boards. You can put that up. Uh, go to Starbucks. Coffee and guitars, man. I mean, that's that's where you could find people. <laughs> I love it. Cool. So we got two two guidelines left. You got to have some sort of staff. Part time can be very part time to start. Um, what's the where we where do we land this thing? All right, last two. Um, number nine is upgrade your AV as much as you can afford. You don't have to do it all at once. It could be in stages. In fact, it usually is in stages. It means you don't have to like, oh, we need a quarter million dollars worth of gear and we need it tomorrow. Just upgrade as much as you can afford and take it one piece at a time. If you're going to prioritize prioritize things, you want to make sure that the sound is as great as it can be. And you want to make sure that the video is as clear and bright as it can be. And so you might be like, well, our first step will be to get a screen that we mount in the room instead of using a portable screen. And maybe the next thing will be we upgrade our projector. Um, but definitely as much as you can afford, try to upgrade your AV. And that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And I think you can probably do it at some different budget points, depending on your space and things like that. I think our last major overhaul, new soundboard, new line of array speaker system, new projectors, screens, uh, we kind of did an overhaul of the whole thing. I think we were in the forty to $50,000 range because we don't have a gigantic space. And, um, um, but you know, so you can, you can probably hit it at multiple budget points. I'm sure in your sanctuary, Jason, you have a larger room and you guys were doing a lot more. And, and I know the price tag was probably quite a lot higher, but I remember you a couple, way, way back when, when we were talking about your original contemporary service, you guys came in, I wasn't it like five grand that you spent on some basic yeah. equipment or something. So there's yeah. lots of entry points into this upgrading of your equipment, depending on your church and the size and, and kind of where you are in the process. So um, it doesn't have to be this, you know, capital campaign to pull it off. Yeah. So uh, last guideline is what I would say is, especially if you're trying to hit the young family demographic, if possible, launch your new service 
on a Sunday morning with Sunday school. Um, because if you try to launch, you know, a lot of people try to launch evening services. Those don't work as well. Even if you go to big mega churches, they're not usually not as well attended. Uh, even in mega churches, it, it's tough to get people who consistently want to give up like weekend evenings. And who's going to bring kids? Like I'm not bringing my kids to a seven o'clock service at night. They're done. Yeah. And that's meltdown time, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. If there's a young, huge young adult population, young professionals or something, that might be something you look at. But if we're targeting preschool families on up kind of world, yeah, you're right. You got to have something great for the kids in, in a time frame that's going to work for, for the real lives people are living. And so that's really crucial. Yeah. And I guess, you know, with all these 10 things, you know, it's going to take some educating of the congregation along the way, you know, before you ever launch, what you can do is after you've gotten that proposal approved by your elders or however your governance works, that's when you start really communicating with the congregation and you're communicating through sermons, you're create, you're, you're trying to explain to them theologically what you want to do practically. That's so, so important about, you know, mission and vision stuff. And then you want to communicate, uh, have opportunity for them to ask questions and to have discussions. So town hall, town hall style meetings or small group meetings in people's homes. Take your time. The more conversations you can have around it, the more support you're going to have. And you always want to do that after you've gotten approval. So you say, yes, our board or our elders, they're on board with this. They have approved this. And so we want to talk to you and have a conversation around it. Yeah, I think that's really crucial. And and I think an important note, we've mentioned this before, this is not a replacement. This is not cancel your traditional service, put contemporary in. Right. I think we've kind of gotten to a point where we say, no, 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 this is, let's, this is something new to add, uh, not, not to take away. And, and that's part of our commitment to being a church where people from their first steps to their last and everyone in between can have a place um, where they're connected, where they worship, where they uh, get to be challenged to continue to grow in their, in their faith as well. So really good stuff, Jason. Thanks for being an innovator out there in uh, New Jersey uh, and, uh, and hope wherever you are that you are pushing and, and you're trying new things and you're not willing to just sit there and do the same stuff over and over again. Um, I think a part of our role as leaders is to innovate and to to continue to think, okay, what's the best way to do this right now? And so that's a challenge because that work never really ends, does it, Jason? No, never does. <laughs> so, uh, hey, thanks everyone for joining us. And remember, uh, subscribe on reclaimleader.com to enter to uh, get access, free access to our Facebook course. Check out our Facebook group and get some coffee. We're going to hook you up there. And also, uh, we're back with another guest next week, Rob McDowell of Divine Renovation, who is, it's actually a Catholic church revitalization organization. We're going to be talking with him about what the Catholic church is doing. Really, really great stuff. So until then, I hope this has helped you to lead change without losing your roots. Thank you for listening to Reclaimed Leader. Join us next time for more insights, interviews, and resources to help you in your leadership journey. 